You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. So I was thinking this week in preparing for the message, thinking about mysteries and secrets because that's a little bit of what Ephesians 3 talks about. But when we think about mystery and secrets, the connotation that first comes to our minds probably is not something spiritual or biblical. When I consider someone having a secret, it usually isn't a good thing. It's something that you don't want anybody to know. That's why it's a secret, so you keep it hidden. So that's kind of my my connotation and my context for a secret. And it's the same way with mystery. It's something that's eerie or something that's unsolvable, and we're trying to figure it out. I think about books that I used to read as a kid. Now, this is going to date me a little bit, and some of you that are in my demographic, it's going to date me, date you as well, that like those mystery books you used to read, like the Hardy Boys, right? Anybody ever read the, or Nancy Drew, whichever, like you would read these books and they'd have these mysteries. Uh, or maybe it's television shows, right, that, that you watch now, but then also that you could have been watching 20 years ago, but you want to watch now or your kids are watching now because you can watch any television show from any era somewhere streamed, you know, somewhere on a, a platform or on the uh, iPad or on your television set. It doesn't matter. You can watch it all. So you might be going and watching X-Files right now and for the first time, and I used to watch that 20 years ago. They were always trying to solve a mystery. Or Law and Order, which is in its 56,000th season, and, and they're still doing stuff. They're, they're trying to solve mysteries, right? Or, or maybe the, the classic, my, my, one of mine and Keevan's, and, and my, I remember my son watching this a long time ago, Psych, right? Just always trying to solve the mystery. But I guess the one that came to mind the most for me was Saturday Morning Cartoons and Scooby-Doo. They were always trying to solve a mystery. Matter of fact, the van they drove around was called the Mystery machine right and then and they would uncover the the whole thing right is they would uncover at the end that there weren't really monsters right it was that there were monsters and I always thought the cartoon's main point was that monsters aren't real in order to help those of us little kids that are watching this be able to sleep well at night, to know that there aren't monsters in the world. Until I had a conversation with one day with somebody on staff that I won't mention their name, and it got real philosophical, and all of a sudden, I were talking about Scooby-Doo, and they said to me, well, the, the point of that cartoon is that the real monsters have been humans all along. Mind blown, cartoon ruined. The Apostle Paul was blowing some minds as well when he started talking about a mystery being revealed. Some of y'all are out there going, what? No, can't be. I don't know what it was. I don't know the, I don't know the authors of the thing. I have no idea what their mind and heart was behind the thing. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The reality is there was a mystery Paul was trying to convey in Ephesians chapter 3, a secret that he said that had been solved and it was now visibly seen And that's what he's trying to tell us. So if you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 is where we're going to start. And then finish through 14 through 19. As a matter of fact, in this particular passage of Scripture in Ephesians 3, Paul uses the word mystery four different times in the first 13 verses. 
But before I read that, I want to clarify that in the New Testament, a mystery is not something spooky or eerie or impossible to comprehend. The Greek word mysterion really just means a sacred secret. It's something that God knows that we don't know yet. And there, did you know there are a lot of things that God knows that we don't know yet? There's a lot of things that God knows because he's God that he hasn't revealed completely to us and we won't fully know until we see him fully as he is in heaven. But the reality of this secret, this sacred secret, is something that's unknown to unbelievers but understood and treasured by the people of God. Something that God has disclosed by his revelation that was hidden from human knowledge before. That's what this is. And Paul is explaining in what we're about to read this morning that the mystery is the fact that through the blood of Jesus, God has united Gentile believers to Jewish believers, torn down the wall of hostility like we talked about last week, and made them one body called the church. A theme that he mentioned in, in, in the first chapter and in the second chapter, but now he's explaining why it has affected him so deeply, what God has done in the church. In verse 1, he starts off by saying he is so committed to proclaiming this mystery that he's willing to be imprisoned for it. That's how he starts off this prayer. I'm willing, I'm willing, I am in prison and I'm willing to be here for the sake of the mystery that is being seen through the gospel. And this is what he does. He interrupts his own prayer to explain why he's doing what he's doing. So we're going to read from that. Have you ever interrupted yourself while you were talking? Like you were going in one direction and then you stopped because you thought of something else and you went another direction till finally the person looks at you and goes like, yeah, but are you going to finish what you started when you started talking or are we done with that line of conversation? And if you're like me, you don't even remember what that was at this point. It's like, I don't even know what I was saying a minute ago. But here's what he says. Let's start reading in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's like he says that and he thinks about something. He's like, and he interrupts himself. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation from God, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. It's like he told us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's like, now reading this that I'm writing right now, you're going to be able to understand a little bit better. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, of, to, Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, the grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Lord, we pray that your word would move deeply into our hearts and change our lives from the inside out. 
In Jesus' name. So Paul begins to pray in verse 1, interrupts himself. He'll come back to his prayer in verse 14. And then he has this lengthy sidebar about what the mystery of Christ is. What is it? We'll say it again. The mystery of Christ is the complete unity of Jews and Gentiles. The, The most divided of peoples in all of history to this point, he is now bringing together with each other through both of their unions with Christ. A double unity, if you will, with Christ and with one another and that is the core the crux of the mystery of the gospel if you will we said this last week but I'll say it again and again and again as long as we're here as the church Paul's reiterating it Jesus is reiterated and here's what we're saying we said this over and over again Paul said it over and over again we're going to say it over and over again the blood of Jesus is the only way that we as sinners can come to a holy God Therefore, the blood of Jesus is the one and only way that God designed for all ethnic groups to come to each other in peace, which is in essence a coming to God in Christ together. That's why there is no peace treaty by human effort. There is nothing that we can do to bridge the gap between ethnic division all over the world, including our own. Nothing we say in our human institutions, although they can be good and helpful or ever going to bring lasting peace there's only one thing that can bring lasting peace and it's the blood of Jesus so we go on to believe that the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins is the only way any human from any ethnic group can be reconciled to God therefore the blood of Jesus is the only way God has designed for every ethnic group to be reconciled to one another this is specifically the mystery Paul is revealing that we as Christians although once divided and hostile towards one another are now reconciled to God together as one new humanity called the church isn't that amazing and what I'm praying And one of the things that we're watching in the theater of the world is that, and there already are, Russians and Ukrainians worshiping together in the same churches, praying for the peace of God to reign in their nations. Paul is now in prison because of preaching the message of unity between once divided people groups mainly because the Jews in particular didn't like the message that they, the Gentiles could be saved and have all the inheritance of Christ. Okay, well, maybe that's okay, but no, y'all are going to worship together in the same church. They had a problem with that. Regardless, Paul is saying that God gave him a divine revelation and a divine commission. God revealed the mystery and then entrusted a ministry to Paul and he said, I am obligated, I'm compelled, I'm constrained to steward this message by making known what has been made known to me. Even if I go to prison, even if I have to suffer, even if I have to die because of what God has made known to me, I cannot remain silent. Can I just tell you how inspiring and also convicting or both that should be to us as the church today? Because God has given us the same stewardship as Paul. Pastor I was just talking about the stewardship that God gives us. It's like he's giving us something that's not ours that we get to steward. What are we going to do with the fact that God has saved our lives and that he's brought us together with people that we might not have done life with normally or we've been hostile with normally and he's called us brothers and sisters in the family of God. What are we going to do with that? 
Because we're called to declare the same mystery through the gospel, through how we live as the church in what 2 Corinthians calls us ministers of reconciliation. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are a minister of reconciliation. That is your job. That is your calling. When you received a divine revelation of who God was and who Jesus is and you accepted him as Savior and Lord, you were immediately invited into a divine commission called the Great Commission. Paul is saying now, now that I know, I can't keep silent about what I know. I've been entrusted with an incredible divine revelation that I must share through divine proclamation because revelation should always lead to a proclamation. When God reveals something to us, it's something that we are called to reveal to others. That's the thing about the mysteries of God, the secrets of his word that we only are going to mine out by spending time in his word through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of his heart to spend time with him and to know him. God won't reveal mysteries to those he can't entrust a ministry. We all want to know stuff. We want to know things. We want to know stuff about God. We want to know things about God. We want to know stuff about our our lives. And oftentimes people like the idea of having some kind of ministry. Pastor, I've got this ministry, or I I want to do this ministry, or I've been doing this ministry, and that's, that's fine. But the ministry that Paul is talking about that we all have that's the primary ministry in our life is the ministry of reconciliation, of making Christ known, sharing and making known what God has shared and made known to us through his Holy Spirit. How far are we willing to go to steward what we've received by sharing all that God has placed in our hearts and in our hands? You know who God shares secrets with? You know who God reveals mysteries to? God reveals mysteries and entrusts ministries to those who are willing to proclaim them, not take credit for them. For those who are willing to allow God to build his church and not try to build their name by the mystery, by the secret, by the revelation. He reveals mysteries to those who get their identity from him and not their identity from their ministry. But the faithful ones are the ones he gives these ministries to who will persevere through what? Through suffering in order to keep sharing. That'll persevere persevere through difficulty and trials and the things that the troubles that the Bible promises that we'll go through in this life, who will persevere through those things and still keep sharing. Through suffering, we keep sharing. That's why to be a witness actually means to be a martyr. That's what witness means. To be a martyr. It's like I'm gonna witness for Jesus. What that means is I'm gonna die to myself. And all of my insecurities and all of my fears and all of the reasons that I could give that I didn't, don't need to do this or shouldn't do this or can't do this, I'm going to die to all of that. And I am going to share what, God, you have shared with me about who you are and what I've become because of the gospel. So in verse 6, Paul practically equates the mystery with the gospel. He says this mystery in verse 6 is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. 
members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. They're the same. They're equal. They come to the cross the same way you do. We're all the same at the cross. The mystery was the truth revealed to Paul, and the gospel was the truth proclaimed by Paul. Paul is convinced that he must communicate and proclaim what God has revealed. Are we convinced that what God has revealed to us that we are to proclaim by his power and might. He said, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He became a servant. Just imagine with me for a second, in Focus Church, what our church would look like, and we could even imagine what the church world would, worldwide would look like if we all were convinced like Paul, that God reveals himself to us in order to entrust us to share what he reveals with others. That by God's grace and his power, whatever God gives us, we feel compelled to share with other people. What if we wholeheartedly believed that we are to serve the gospel as the church, not the gospel serve us at the church? What if we believe that the more we know him, which is to the secrets of his heart through his word that he reveals to those who seek him. What if we believe the more that we know him, the more we are to proclaim him? The more we know him, the more we want to make him known. That is the call in our lives. That the more I know, the more I make him known. Not the more I let people know what I know. And there's a difference. It actually could be the same thing, but with the wrong heart, it comes across completely different. So we see this progression of communication with Paul that God uses. He makes known the mystery through revelation. God divinely reveals the mystery that God has had since the beginning is what he's saying. That God always had a plan. He was always going to bring his plan to pass to redeem people back to himself, to reconcile us. And nobody knew what it was going to look like or how it was going to happen. They just knew he was going to do it. That was the mystery is now being revealed. How's he going to do it? Through Jesus Christ's blood and through the church. That's what he's saying. So in verse 10, he's commissioning Paul to preach the gospel to everybody he can. And it says, God's manifold wisdom and eternal purposes were made known to the principalities and the powers through the reality of the church as they watched the church begin to grow. This is fascinating right here. There's a, a cycle of communication that I believe still continues today through the church. Watch this. God reveals a plan to Paul by direct revelation that he is now putting into the word at this point. And then what happens? Paul and others, and even including believers, you and I today, reveal God's plans to other people through verbal proclamation of the gospel, by which the message spreads throughout the world. And that is historically a fact. It's what is happening right now and has been happening since the dawn of the church, that the gospel is spreading to the peoples and the nations of the entire world. That's what's taking place. And that while it's taking place, is a visual model, representation, the multi-ethnic, unified church, that message finally reaches the unseen, angelic, and demonic spectators, and they are in awe. Wow. Look at what Jesus did with those people. Wow. And it's hard for God to use you for divine communication if you're unwilling to be used for divine proclamation. 
It's hard for God to reveal mysteries and reveal things to you. If you're... Me and Cam are going to have an issue with these people. That doesn't even make any sense. I didn't do anything. Thank you. If it does it again, I'll pick this up. I'm going to lay hands on it. Jesus, heal this thing. Paul and other believers, including us today, are revealing what God has shown us. That revelation should lead to proclamation. I won't belabor the point, but I said it to the first service. If you want divine communication, it's hard for God to use you if you've got spiritual constipation. Meaning, if God shares something with you, you can't keep it inside. So as a church, I want to focus on the main lesson of Ephesians 3. And this is what Ephesians 3 is teaching, that the Bible, the Bible is saying the biblical centrality of the church. That's what it's saying, that there is a centrality of the church. The Bible is teaching, that's what Ephesians 3 is all about, the biblical centrality of the church. And here's the amazing thing. Not only is the future of the global church certain in sovereign power of God through Christ, because the scripture tells us not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. But also, God's sovereign purposes in the world right now center on his church in the earth. The picture the Apostle Paul is painting in Ephesians 3 of the centrality of the church in God's work in the world is absolutely astounding. We could state it this way. Christ displays his glory uniquely through his church. Christ displays his glory uniquely through you. God made Paul a minister of the gospel. And Paul writes, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everybody what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's the plan? We'll say it again. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I can't get over this. This is just mind-boggling to me. That the manifold wisdom, manifold means multifaceted, multicolored, variegated wisdom of God is making known. That, that is being made known not just in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm for all the universe to see. And how? How's the manifold wisdom of God being seen throughout the entire universe, even in the heavenlies, through the church? Paul is saying, regardless if y'all pay attention to your church or not, the angelic and demonic forces are paying attention to what God is doing in the world through his church. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. There is no other way for the mystery of the gospel to be revealed except through the unified church. And not just any church. I'm talking about the gospel-revealing church, the multi-ethnic church, the diverse but unified church, the counter-cultural church. This is who Christ is displaying his glory through, his manifold witness in the earth, through you. This type of church, the type of church I believe God has called us and is shaping us to be. And why is this vital to our spiritual lives? Because if the church is central to God's plan, then it must be central to our lives. If the church is central to God's plan, and the Bible says that it is, 
then it has to be central to our lives. How can the church be an add-on to our lives or an optional weekend diversion that we might or might not do when Jesus died to make us his bride who is revealing his wisdom in the earth? And I'm not saying there aren't things that come up, but I'm telling you, my friends, I can't wait to get with the church. Sundays is my favorite day. Worshiping Jesus together with the body of Christ is my favorite thing to do. Proclaiming the gospel and the mystery of that gospel is my absolute favorite thing to do. And, and here's the thing. We often want to curate our own spiritual lives and not have the church in it. Like we do our favorite list on our go-to music platform. Well, this is my personal relationship with Jesus. We'll add that. It's personal. Nobody should. It's personal. I do what God says, and that's all I do. That's all I answer to, nobody else. I have my favorite worship song playlist, and it doesn't include a lot of the songs y'all do, because I don't really like those. My favorite Christian podcast playlist is out there, and I, I get to hear things that I agree with. And then my favorite preacher sermons, I have those all lined up on YouTube. And, and guess what, Pastor Brent, you're not in them. And I go to my favorite small group, not just once a week but every single day, and it has six people in it. Me, myself, and I, and the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's all I need. Guess what? Paul said, that's not the mystery. That's not the church. The church is every blood-bought son and daughter pulled together as one. The people, wherever they are, people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ from every nation, tribe, and tongue. These people, whoever they are, are to come together as one and worship their father as a spiritual family. And I know the church is imperfect and it's had problems and issues and inevitably it will continue to have traditions or models or structures that will fall short and it's filled with people just like myself that will fail at times. But here's what I do know. No matter what has happened or what will happen, we cannot loathe or leave that which God loves and continues to lead. That was the weakest clap I've ever heard in my life. I was like, you know, sometimes I'm just sitting there, am I gonna say anything about that or not? No, I'm, that was weak. I mean, Joe Biden got better claps in his speed of the State of the Union address than I just got. I mean, I don't care which side of the aisle you stand on, you can still clap. Okay, yeah. It's not... For me, it's the fact that we're applauding the fact that God is building his church and she has a central place in his plan for the earth. I want to expound on that biblical centrality of the church a little bit more. The church is central to history. Now, I know there's a lot that we talk about in history. There's a lot of deconstruction that goes on right now. That's a great uh, word that everybody uses to describe everything. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as it leads you back to the cross. But here's what I want you to understand, that although there are things that the church did in history and have been a part of that are not biblical, that is not the church that Jesus is talking about that is going to be the, the manifold witness of God in the earth. Yes, they may have professed that, but what they were doing or what they may have been operating was not in line with the word of God and the character of Christ. That's going to happen. Why? Because it's humans 
and we're going to do stupid things. So we think of history as a bunch of dates where things happen, big events. But Paul's take on history is a little bit different. Paul is saying in these passages that God's eternal plan or purpose is being worked out in history and it belongs to the church. The creation of a new reconciled humanity in union with Jesus Christ. So as Christians today in the church in the earth today, we affirm that history is about God. It's his story. I just learned a new word this week. It's the word narcissus. And we've become very adept in the church at being narcissetical with the scripture. What that means is that I read this story that is about God and him redeeming us. And I inject myself into it as if the story's about me. Narcissus. And I don't want to be that. Church, we're not going to be that. What we see is the story of God, God's story. I'm not trying to make God's story about me. I'm trying to surrender myself to be a part of God's story. The Bible is telling us that God's eternal historical plan is Jesus Christ united with his redeemed. That's when I get to be a part of the story. And reconciled people called the church. Also, think about how typical history that we study focuses on kings and queens and leaders and presidents and people in power, important people. That's why they made history, infamous or famous. But the Bible is different. The Bible concentrates on the saints, the church, the insignificant, the marginalized, the unimportant, the forgotten, those who may be unknown to the world but are known by God. Can I just tell you, my friends, that I would rather be unknown to the world and a friend of God than to be known by the world and have more followers than anybody else and be a stranger to God. We've been called to be a church together. Also, secular history focuses on the ever-changing world map as nations rise against other nations and then one annexes another, even as we're seeing right now in the Ukraine. And we've studied maps throughout history and we'll talk about history and here's where the border was here and here's where the border is now and this war happened and this fight happened and, and this thing happened and now this changed just like things could be changing right now. But here's what the Bible concentrates on. Here's how Paul says it relates to history. Paul is saying that the church is the center of history as the multi-ethnic, multinational community called the church who has been sent to the ends of the earth and which claims the whole world for Jesus whose kingdom will never come to the end because God is without borders. There are none. The church is central to the gospel as well as to history. We got rid ourselves of our individualistic approach to the gospel. What I mean is that the full gospel is not all about what Christ has done for me. The full gospel is about what Christ has done to make you and me one. The full gospel is not just about me, it's about we. It's about us. It's about the body. And that I can't do what I do without this part of the body and that part of the body. I can't look at somebody else in the body of Christ and say, that's insignificant. You don't matter. What God is saying is, no, all of this is about what God has done, yes, inside of you, but inside of you to make you a part of the body. Ephesians 3 says the gospel is Christ and the mystery of Christ, which we stated over and over again this morning, is the fact that Christ died and rose again to save me, but also to create me to be a part of of a new community. 
He didn't only redeem me from sin, but he also adopted me into his family. He didn't just reconcile us to God, but he reconciled us to one another. The church is central to the gospel because the gospel is good news of a new community, a new family, and a brand new way of doing life. Here's what I need you to understand this morning. This is why the church is central to life. It's impossible to display the power of the gospel apart from the beauty of the church. Impossible. Which leads me to the last one. The church is central to life. Not just life, my life, your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the church has to be central to your life. I'm coming back here because that's where the hammer hits the nail. And the hammer is the gospel and the nail is me and you. Christian conversion is not God pouring out abundant blessings on our plans. It's as one writer read earlier this week said, it's not God sprinkling magical holy pixie dust on all of your normal routines. Christian conversion is about a complete paradigm shift of the whole entirety of my life. New categories, new capacities, new priorities, new purpose. To give honor and glory to him. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 19, Paul comes back to his prayer that he just interrupted, that we just talked about. And he prays three, depending on what commentator you read, maybe four different requests for the church. Really for all Christians everywhere. So this would include you and I today if your life belongs to Jesus. Basically, Paul was praying for strength. He was praying for depth. He was praying for understanding. And he was praying for fullness. Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays that according to the riches of God's glory, we may be strengthened with the power through his spirit. And why do we need to be deeply strengthened? So that we can have that power of Christ at work within us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not easy for human beings as earthen vessels, and that's what we're called, broken clay pots, if you will, for us to house, for us to have the the Christ dwelling inside of us. In a real sense, in a wonderful uh, way beyond our comprehension, Christ dwelling inside of us, in us, earthen vessels. It's just, it should be mind-boggling. Y'all remember when, COVID first happened and, and toilet paper disappeared off of all the shelves, right? Nobody, nobody had anything to wipe with at home, right? You had to, and here's the other thing. Then we had no gas. Like everybody was going to the gas station, like, and it was, we're running out of gas. So there's this picture. I don't know if you saw this picture. There's a picture of this lady. I don't know where it was. And she was filling up trash bags with gas. And you're like, uh, I don't know if that's ingenuitive or I don't know what that is. But how long is that gas going to stay in that bag before it eats through the bag? And here's the thing about why we need to be strengthened as earth, earthen vessels. If I drop a piece of white hot nuclear fuel into a clay pot, because that's what we are, an earthen vessel, that clay pot is going to need to be strengthened to hold that fuel. Christ does not come into our lives to make our lives easier. He makes our lives wonderfully harder as he cares for us with a deep love so great that we need his strength in order to endure all that we're going through with him. 
So as earthen vessels, we need to be strengthened to house the resurrection power that is at work in us to make us one body called the church. Secondly, he prays in Ephesians 3.17 that we would become rooted and grounded in Christ's love. In other words, that would be the foundation under our feet, the unchanging love of Christ. As we are settled and secure in this love, he prays this, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that we would understand Understand what he is doing in the earth. Maybe you've always read that the way I've read that, that we would comprehend with all the saints. I always put the emphasis on all, but I think this is really important. I believe Paul puts the emphasis on with. Have strength to comprehend with, because I would think all, yeah, I'm supposed to comprehend with all the other saints all over the world that I don't really know and don't care to know. Even the people at my church, all, all them, yeah, Lord, that would help me understand like with all of them. No, he's saying, I'll help you understand with them that if you're not with them if you're disconnected from them the body of Christ then you're not going to comprehend and understand the fullness of God's love in Christ because that's how we understand in community together what is the generous length height depth of God's love through Christ that includes us the eternal length of his love bearing with us even though we fail often the all-forgiving height of his love surpassing even your worst sins and the sacrificial depth of his love lifting us out of our most what inexcusable failures that's the love that we understand with one another and Paul prays that we would all know this love of Christ with experiential, deep feeling in our hearts, taking us beyond what we could think or imagine, as he says later on in this passage, that we would understand and comprehend and enter into the magnitude of Christ's manifold, multifaceted, variegated, multicolored love surrounding all of his people. And then lastly, he prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That is, is that we will be so satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ that sin loses its power over our lives. Oh, church, what I so desperately hope and desire that sin would lose its power over us in every area of our life, that it would lose its appeal, that it would lose its draw, and that we would find God in him our complete and utter joy and happiness. Then and only then will we experience the freedom in our hearts that we're supposed to experience and live lives in complete surrender to Jesus as the unified but diverse body of Christ. Paul's prayer paints the picture of a real, non-negotiable, compelling Christianity with the church. Christianity calls us out of our natural smallness up into the fullness of Christ's presence, the fullness of God. We have been saved into a powerful sharing of his mighty love together as the church, brothers and sisters, and we have such such a confidence in God together and his purpose for us as his church that nothing, not even the gates of hell, can stop us. That's who we are. Then look how Paul ends this. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. He says, don't be discouraged because I'm suffering for you. Suffering and glory go hand in hand throughout the whole New Testament. And Jesus went through suffering, and he said that we're going to go through it as well. Has that not been your experience? That in this life there's a dance between suffering and joy, suffering and God's glory in your life. And Paul says something a little bit different, though. He says this. He goes, he says his suffering is going to bring them glory. Man, that's, you talk about selfless sacrifice. That's really what that is. 
That's laying down our lives for the sake of others in the gospel. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm willing to pay any price in order to see that the church, you, he's writing to the church, that you, the church, would be what you're supposed to be. I'll go to prison. I'll be flogged. I'll be shipwrecked. I'll be beaten. I'll be left for dead. I'm willing to die, suffer in order to pay the price, if I have to, for the church to be the church. And then it makes Philippians 3.10, which Paul wrote as well from prison, make even more sense than he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We could read that and say, well, yeah, that's the apostle Paul, pastor. I mean, come on. But if Jesus died for the church and Paul is imploring us that he is willing to suffer for the church, then I believe that there is modern day implications for us right now as the church. If the church is central to God's plan in the earth, then it must be central in our lives. We can't just push it to the fringes of our attention and time. It just can't be mundane church attendance if I feel like it or not. Passionless worship services to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Shallow fellowship and individualistic isolationism. I'm fine without anybody. It can't be the church that God's called us to be without sacrificial giving from all that call the church their home and family. Without missional going. It can't be without selfless service and heartfelt compassion. Today, church, people of God, in focus, our heart's desire should be striving to be intricately involved with the church, wholeheartedly giving everything that we have in worship, empathetically caring about one another as if they, you are, they are your family, and in fellowship and genuinely compassionate towards others that we reach out to. Ultimately, this means we're going to have to pray, serve, give, and at some point, even if we pray and serve and give at some point, probably suffer in order for the church to be what she's called to be. Maybe in order for me to be a part of the church the way I'm supposed to be. As I think about things that I've walked through, me, my wife, my family, and things that we've suffered through, I know now as I look back that even the suffering that I've been through is for the purpose of me being more Christ-like part of the body of Christ. And Paul is praying, just as Jesus did in John 17, that we would be one, that when the time comes for us to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm as the church, the unified church, although everything else is pulling apart around us, even people in the church, that we would not be found lacking or wanting, but that we would be strengthened from the inside and filled with the fullness of God in order to beautifully display and boldly display the manifold witness of God in the earth through the unified church. Let me say this before I pray, because I think maybe this is just in our context, I act, but I don't think so. I think this is worldwide for the most part. Everybody likes a winner. That's why there's such a thing as bandwagon fans. Like nobody roots for the losers. Yeah, we haven't won a game in 10 years. I love my team. I've never heard anybody say that. And if they do, they're just delusional at this point. It's like, I hope they win someday. We, we like winners. We like to be associated with winners. We like to be in something that looks like it's winning, not losing. But see, that's why people rejected Jesus. Because it looked like he was losing. And it looked like he'd lost. And everybody walked away. 
What they didn't know was that three days later, the ultimate victory was going to be at hand. And nobody was around to cheer. What I'm encouraging you to do, and what Paul's encouraging the church to do is, just because things look like somebody or the church or whatever might be losing, we've already won through Christ. He's just saying, are you going to stick around long enough to be a part of the winning? And I hope and pray that we as a church right here in Evans, Georgia, will stand together as the unified body of Christ, diverse but one, being the church that God's called us to be. Amen. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.